everyone, it is Stephanie Postles, the host of Up Next in Commerce. Before we get into our latest interview with another e-commerce leader, I wanted to let you know that the Up Next in Commerce podcast is now available for sponsorship for the first time ever. By partnering with us, your company will be connected to interviews with the most compelling founders, CEOs, VPs, and digital leaders in the world of commerce today. You have nothing to gain but thousands of followers and millions of impressions each and every month. Reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org to see how your business can benefit from partnering with our team at Up Next in Commerce. Swimwear pre-internet was purchased in great quantities via direct mail. So it really is a category that's conducive to try at home or buy at home. And we knew that before launching Somersault. And so many of the brands of yesterday, particularly post-COVID-19, are not in the space. So it gave us really a ton of white space to go after. Believe it or not, in the pre-internet days, a good deal of swimsuit purchasing was done via direct mail, not in store. So why, even in today's digital first age, are big brands still focusing on in-store experiences when it comes to selling swimsuits? Lori Coulter saw an opportunity in this disconnect. Using data and a methodology she had already perfected in the made-to-order space, she co-founded Somersault, a direct-to-consumer women's lifestyle brand. And you could say Lori found the perfect wave to ride to success. In the very first summer of the company's existence, the waitlist for its bathing suits surpassed 10,000 people. On this episode of Up Next in Commerce, Lori explains what trends she was looking at in the market that compelled her to take the lead to start Somersault, and which ultimately led to its massive success. Lori also shares her tips for inventory management and marketing advice for D2C brands. Plus, she goes into detail about the challenges female founders face when fundraising and how to turn those challenges into wins and buy-in from skeptical investors. Enjoy this episode. Up Next in Commerce is brought to you by Salesforce Commerce Cloud. Respond quickly to changing customer needs with flexible e-commerce connected to marketing, sales, and service. Deliver intelligent commerce experiences your customers can trust across every channel. Together, we're ready for what's next in commerce. Learn more at salesforce.com slash commerce. Welcome to another episode of Up Next in Commerce. I'm your host, Stephanie Postles, co-founder of mission.org. And today on the show, we have Lori Coulter, the co-founder and CEO of Somersault. Lori, welcome. Thank you. I'm really thrilled to be here. Yeah, I'm so excited to have you. I'd love to hear a bit about your background before we get into Somersault, which is it seems like a crazy story, awesome things I want to dive into, but I want to hear a little bit about you before Somersault. Like, what was your background, work experience, all that? So uh, what's interesting, I think I'm probably, I don't know if I want to say I'm born an entrepreneur, if I believe that or not, but even in college, I would tell my friends if I just had a good idea, I would do it. And I went straight through from undergrad to business school at Washington University here in St. Louis. Again, really had that entrepreneurial mindset from the beginning. And when I went to business school, I intended, I wrote several business plans, kind of had an entrepreneurial focus, although that wasn't really as in vogue at that time as it is now. And I um, left business school and went to work for an economic consulting firm, uh, primarily just understanding you know, at, at a macro level economics, 
Uh, we did a lot of selling to major banks and investment banks, but I always really had an interest in fashion and apparel and had turned down several jobs coming out of business school, really in the industry that I loved. You know, at that point in time, uh, was focused on a concept around sort of fashion and technology and digital body scanning. So really working at the intersection of technology and fashion at an early date, did a ton of research and eventually launched a startup in partnership with Macy's in-store as their vendor doing digital body scanning and made to order apparel, initially swimwear. And uh, eventually we were supplying other kind of mid-sized brands, early e-commerce brands like ModCloth and some large-scale that's awesome. So that was my story pre-Somersault. We really parlayed that intellectual property. That's really a foundation. We still use it Somersault today in regards to our fit, quick turnaround manufacturing and product. Very cool. How did you get big brands like Macy's to partner with you and your company early on like that? Like those are some good names to uh, get in front of. So what's interesting about being a founder is really you know, half of it is just sticking to it. And so raising your hand, asking the question, asking for the meeting and just telling your story, really it's, it it truly is a sales process. And, you know, I just managed to get in front of the right person at Macy's and and got the deal done. So I I didn't know anyone in particular. It really was just, Hey, can I tell you my story? And and we're off to the race. That's great. So you're mentioning IP earlier. Well, and you're saying that right now you use some of that IP with Somersault. What was the process like where you had one company you were partnering with, you know, the Macy's of the world, and then now you're moving over to Somersault, which I'd love for you to detail a bit about what Somersault is and how you brought that IP over. Yeah, so um, so we launched at Macy's over 10 years ago, and in June of 2016, I met my now co-founder, Reshma Chatteron Chamberlain, and she also as a serial entrepreneur and, and had owned an agency working with some, some of the larger direct-to-consumer brands on the East Coast, particularly on the brand and, and digital kind of marketing side. And I shared with her the intellectual property in regards to fit. We had scanned over 10,000 women and made a swimsuit for each of them. So we really had optimized that process for the consumer and, and knew exactly what worked for a broad spectrum of the U.S. market. And then we had separately kind of mastered quick turnaround manufacturing and prototyping, which allows us to move at the speed of lightning that we're still moving out with ourselves to this day. When I shared with her kind of the IP I was sitting on, what I was seeing in the market with regards to consumer trends, and um, I didn't see a, a true path to scale for brands that were pursuing that kind of traditional wholesale model in the apparel space. Really, it had has had headwinds for a long time and even more so now with COVID-19. But I shared my story with Reshma, what I was thinking. She got really excited. Um, we went away from that conversation. Ironically, that was a, a conversation at Chipotle. It wasn't nice. intended to be any sort of life-defining moment. We were just two Midwestern founders kind of sharing our ideas about e-commerce and the future of retail. But she really inspired me to look hard at that direct-to-consumer business model. I went away from that conversation, wrote the initial business plan and strategy for what is now Somersault. I developed a collection, which I think kind of separates the dreamers from the doers, right? The ability to actually manifest a concept and then go out and do it. And then I went back to Rashma in December of 2016, a full six months later, to retain her agency. 
Um, ironically, she was sort of in transition at that moment, wasn't taking on new clients, but serendipitously, we ran into each other in New York, which is a bit ironic because we're both based in St. Louis, uh, ran into each other in New York, the Gramercy Park Hotel Rose Bar. I'd been interviewing PR teams that week and had the deck and the line sheet with me, and I literally cornered her on the spot, um, shared what I was working on, and her response was, I'm interested, but would you consider That's how we joined forces, and the rest is really history. That's awesome. And how do you uh, describe Somersault today? Somersault is a direct-to-consumer women's lifestyle brand. Uh, Direct-to-consumer meaning we sell primarily on our own website and platforms and, and have an ongoing relationship with and as opposed to working through a major retailer or another department store. Very cool. So when my team was doing research on Somersault, I saw some wild numbers that were a little bit hard to believe. I saw that, and you can tell me like, if it, you can be like, Stephanie, these aren't wrong numbers, but I saw that you had a wait list for one of your bathing suits of over 10,000 people. Uh, that, that is absolutely 100% true. And what, what is really, really interesting about that is that was our first summer at a wait. Uh, That's wild. And so, right, we had raised a very small angel round to launch. We were everywhere that first summer from Refinery29 to the Today Show to Elle Magazine. I think Forbes covered us. And it became really clear, one, that we didn't have enough inventory that first summer. And two, um, when we saw that wait list continue to build, we knew there was really an incredible amount of pent-up demand. And I think it's really twofold. One, the brand itself is resonating with the modern consumer. And, and really, so much swimwear had been done in this kind of over-sexualized, tired, outdated way. And somersaults fresh and new and fun. And really, our whole mission is to inspire joy, the childlike joy we all felt at the beach as children. And I think it's just so encouraging to see that message resonating with the consumer. And then separately, we, we translate that message in our products as well. And clearly, the fit the aesthetic, you know, this, this idea that you can be fashionable and chic, but still comfortable is really important to the core of the brand. And then separately, um, I think that the macro dynamics in retail are really in our favor. They have been from the start and even more kind of now that we're facing COVID-19 as a nation. Yeah, I completely agree. So what were some of the main drivers behind getting that consumer demand? I mean, I know you were mentioning PR and a couple uh, well-known like outlets to probably spread the word, but what would you say were the key drivers to getting in front of people and then also encouraging them to join a wait list? Because when I think about buying something, sometimes I'm very much like, I want it right now. Like if I need a bathing suit, it's because I need it probably for tomorrow. So how did you get people to agree to, you know, get on a wait list and wait until you had the inventory back and even get in front of them in the first place? So when we were we were launching, and even to this day, we Somersault just celebrated our third anniversary on May 23rd. So that gives you an idea of how far along we are in the cycle of, of business. And from the very beginning, it was about a 360 degree approach. It wasn't about just one platform um, as far as how we speak to our consumers. So that includes press, that includes uh, email, that includes social media working with influencers, working with other brand collaborations. It's, it's really about bubbling up to the top and speaking to our consumer, you know, in multiple ways at multiple times, but always when, where, and how she wants to be spoken to is really how we talk about it. Mm-hmm. And obviously the scale is quite a bit different now, but at the same time, 
those principles really hold true. And I, I always tell brands, if you're focused on one platform, you know, only really one message without that brand storytelling, it's such a risk um, to the business model over time. And, and what's wonderful about Somersault, we, we truly are a brand that is digital first. Mm-hmm. Yeah, completely agree about relying too heavily on one outlet. What kind of metrics do you look into? I mean, it sounds like you're doing a lot, whereas a lot of TDC companies we've had on here so far, they can only, they only have enough bandwidth to maybe focus on like one or two platforms and they're kind of going deep instead of going wide. So how do you start thinking about metrics that holistically look at all of your marketing efforts? Are there any certain things that you rely on? Yeah, I think a couple of things are really important when you're a digital first brand. First and foremost is sort of sessions on the site and any activation we do, we want to see the consumer coming to the website. And then of course, conversion rate is very important, but it's really that traffic that you have to have sort of on your storefront um, that is, is really important. And then separately, we look at organic search metrics. And anytime we have a brand ac- activation, whether that is something on social media or get an out-of-home campaign in, in New York, as well as um, even direct mail, you want to see search lifting and then eventually traffic to the site. And then as you continue to see conversion lift as well, you can understand, you can measure the difference and understand, hey, this consumer is highly likely to purchase. She has high intent. And so we measure that as well. Got it. So selling swimwear online seems difficult, at least when I think about like, you know, making sure the measurements are right and that it looks good. How do you um, showcase, you know, the fact that your swimsuits are comfortable and I know that they're, they protect you from the sun and they'll also fit right. Like, how do you display that messaging to the consumer to where they know that like, this will be a good fit and I'm not worried about, you know, getting something that'll just be like really weird on me. Yeah. So what's interesting about that is from the very beginning, again, it was about inspiring that sense of childlike joy. And we always showed the consumer kind of a, a diverse set of women, both from age, race, background, size perspective, and that's really core to who we are at Somersault. And so again, I think she trusts us as kind of the best friend she brings in the dressing room just because of how open we are still showing, I think, aspirational and joyful women, Mm -hmm. but still some reality there that's quite different than the approach that traditional retailers and, and really particularly swimwear brands have taken in the past. Yeah, I definitely got that feel when I was looking through your website. I'm like, oh, these people actually feel like me, where oftentimes, especially on Instagram, when you're, you know, looking at swimwear companies, it's always the really skinny models and very tall. And you're like, okay, well, that's not really exactly me. And I'm not in uh, off the coast of Italy or whatever, like they're doing, it just feels so detached from like reality. And I really liked how when I was browsing your website, it's like you could see people from all walks of life and like all different body types. And it made you instantly feel a little bit more secure with like browsing through the swimsuits, knowing that there will be a good fit for you there. And I think the other thing that's interesting, swimwear pre-internet was purchased um, in, in, in great quantities via direct mail. So it really is a category that's conducive to try at home or buy at home. Mm-hmm. And we knew that before launching Somersault. And so many of the brands of yesterday are really, I mean, particularly post-COVID-19, are not in the space. So it gave us really a ton of white space to go after. And, and also, from the very beginning, it was never just about swimwear. It was always about building 
you know, those concentric circles out from swim that really fill her wardrobe and closet with all things somersault and starting with things that are comfortable, cozy, and then really meeting her where she is right now. But what's interesting is we had already launched um, loungewear, pajamas, and kind of cozy, comfy sweaters in Q4. So I'd love to talk a little bit about how you go about designing your product, because I think I saw that you guys have about one and a half million measurements from people. And I'm wondering how you use those data points to create a new product. Like, what does that process look like? So what's interesting about the body scans is that we had we had developed a modular approach to allowing the consumer to sort of mix and match the perfect building blocks of the swimsuit. So whether that's changing the neckline or the leg height or the seat coverage or the bra or the the lining or the straps or the back, it, it really was a mix and match approach, which in reality is an unlimited license to continue to create on an ongoing basis and still hold that basic fit. And so that's, that's the approach we took, you know, 10 years ago. And we've benefited from that at Somersault, every new style that we're bringing out. And it allows us to not um, have to move at sort of a snail's pace. We can really roll out new products at an exceptional speed and then have confidence that they're going to fit the consumer. When we bring yeah, that makes sense. Do you guys have a full-on data science team who's working behind the scenes to make sense of the numbers and give like suggestions and things like that? We do. And it's phenomenal um, at just the level of detail because we're 100% sold, almost 100%, maybe not quite, um, 100% sold on our own platforms. We really have all levels of data by style, by skew, by size, uh, any comments from the consumer, any return rates or return reasons. We can, we can go in, view that data, and then make those incremental improvements that make such a difference over time. It's quite different than how most major brands work and, and certainly major retailers. Yep. Yeah, completely agree. How do you, so how are you organizing the data in a way that you can make quick decisions? Because it seems like with all those data points coming in, you would need some kind of nice dashboard to be able to just look at each week to then be able to make adjustments like you were talking about. Like how, what's best practices on that? So what's interesting is we have a, you know, a big query database and pulls in uh, data from multiple different platforms. And so at least eight right now, I believe. And then we are able to sort of take that in and cross-reference across platforms so that, for instance, in a, from a return reason perspective, we want to see the sales data on one platform, but we need the return data from another as well as the reviews from a third, and we can we can cross reference and, and make sense of it all in a way um, that's really clear on a and on a particular dashboard. And certainly, again, it's a, it's the type of situation where we have set dashboards that we work from, but then we're trying to answer maybe a new question, and we continue to build there on an ongoing basis. Any adjustments that you've made to your site where you've seen increases in conversion or less returns or yeah, any big uh, strategic plays you've made there that have helped with the consumer experience or uh, buying behavior? So uh, my co-founder is an amazing UX designer by training. And so we are constantly measuring conversion. You know, the, the UX user experience is super important to us at Somersault. And we're making incremental improvements all the time on an ongoing basis. So if you see us make a change it's, and it stays long-term, it's probably because we've seen a, a lift in conversion or uh, along the way. Yeah, that's great. So you guys founded the company in Missouri, right? 
We're based in Missouri, St. Louis, Missouri. I'd love to hear a little bit about your experience because I haven't talked to many people who founded a company there. So I want to hear uh, what your experience has been around building there. What kind of advantages do you have for not being in like, you know, a high cost of living area like the SF Bay area? Like a lot of people are in New York. Like what is that experience like for you? So what's really interesting uh, about building a startup and particularly a consumer tech startup in the Midwest is that we have a unique view of the entire country that I think is a bit of a challenge for brands that are really truly coastal. Maybe they're in SF or, or New York. Um, and if you think about the consumer brands of the last 50 years that have really gotten to critical scale, and I'm talking the Nikes of the world or even Spanx, mm-hmm. a lot of times they're not coastal in, or they're not in the major tech um, startup hubs. And we, we believe there's something to that. There's something about being sort of the merry band of outsiders. And I don't know if you've read um, the, the Nike sort of bio, but yes. they talk about that a lot there. It's sort of their brand, their way. We're doing it our way. And not that it's that you don't borrow from the best practices of other startups, certainly, but at the same time, you're authentic to who you are as people, as founders, as well as authentic to the brand and to the consumer. And that is really working for us. Uh, and so we're grateful to be based in St. Louis. I do think fundraising outside of the coast is very t- can be very difficult, particularly at the earliest stages. And if you think about it, less than 3% of venture capital goes to women founders. Less than 20% is out- outside the major hubs of New York, San Francisco, and Boston. So the odds were for us um, at the earliest venture stages were, were tough. And we heard no many times particularly uh, at our seed round. Um, but thankfully we persevered. Yep. Yeah. I saw that you guys raised 26 and a half million or a little bit above that. Yes. Yeah. That's, that's huge for yeah this kind of company. I'm wondering what, what kind of lessons did you learn, you know, going through each round and like, how did you close that final uh, large round on the third time? So, so I think, um, honestly, the, the, the large round was the easiest. And I think it has to do with just for the proven numbers uh, whereas when you're at seed and series A, you're still selling yourselves as founders as well as the concept. And I mean, it's a bit of a stretch for two women founders and starting with swimwear as a, a garment category. Now, we always intended to be that larger lifestyle brand, and we're certainly executing on that now. But it's still difficult at the early stages to convince people that you, one, that's where you're going and two, that you can do it. And, and you know, grateful that we have amazing investors on our team. And that uh, we were able to get it done. Lessons learned. Um, I think, you know, one of the most interesting lessons we learned along the way is, is I can give credit to a researcher at Columbia, Dana Conze. And she, somewhere in 2017, 2018, published an article in Harvard Business Review around the questions investors ask female founders. I don't know if you've seen any of this research, but 65% of the time, women founders are asked what she refers to as prevention questions Mm -hmm. and 35% of the time promotion questions. And the opposite is true for men. Male founders, men are asked 65% promotion, 35% prevention. And the strategy we took immediately upon seeing that, that research is to always answer a prevention question or a promotion question doesn't matter with a promotion answer and not to get into that cycle of mitigating risk, which is essentially what happens as a female founder. If you're asked a prevention question, you, you answer in a small way. Here's what we're doing 
keep us from failing, uh, not to, here's not, not, here's what we're doing to be the biggest and best possible we in the company can be. And it makes a big difference in the outcomes with regards to fundraising. And I'm a big believer that all women uh, founders, and probably it's, it's important for all women in general uh, to really learn how to advocate for themselves and to not answer questions in the, the risk prevention the smallest way possible. Yeah, that, that's great. So what is, I want to dive a little bit deeper into that because that's really interesting. What is another or a few examples of a prevention question and how would you answer that? And then what's an example of a promotion question? Just to make sure I fully understand the two. Sure. Okay. Um, I was speaking to an MBA classroom probably 18 months ago. And I, I told the Somersault story, told our growth tra- trajectory, you know, fundraising path. Clearly, we were hitting sort of the top 1% metrics from a growth perspective worldwide as it relates to venture capital backed consumer startups. So, you know, having this big story and the first or second question I took, I fielded from the class was essentially a prevention question. And the answer was, given your extraordinary growth, how are you going to manage the crazy amounts of inbound negative customer comments in regards to, like essentially just assuming that given our growth, we were going to have a lot of complaints, um, which was by no, there was no reason for that type of questioning. And I took that opportunity to say, hey, stop, let's talk about what just happened. And certainly you asked me a prevention question, would you like to reframe? And, and he did, and I think I'm sure, hopefully we'll never do it again. But um, that being said, just understanding that happens a lot to women investors. And, and ironically, it's not just by male investors, it's female investors too. Mm-hmm. And so just understanding our own biases to make sure that we're allowing founders to paint their opportunity in the biggest possible way. Promotion questions would be sort of tell me about your growth plan to get to XYZ number next year, or uh, where are you going to be in three years? What's the biggest market opportunity? What's your next step? What's your next product category after after swimwear? Uh, What's the fifth product category? So all of those things. um, How do you reach your consumer on an ongoing basis and increase that sort of lifetime value and repeat? purchasing behavior. So all of those things are growth oriented. Mm-hmm. Risk oriented would be um, anything that was around just minimizing the bottom as opposed to maximizing the top, yep. top line of the revenue. Got it. Yeah. I love that. That's such a good reminder. Whenever someone's phrasing something in like a fear-based approach or like you're already set up for failure type thing, it's probably, you don't need to answer that. And I like that you kind of just, you know, stop them and said like, how about you rephrase that to actually ask a meaningful question instead of just trying to have me go down like a negative spiral and answer it in a way that's going to hurt me ultimately. So that's great. So did you pick any investors that were strategic in like the D2C swimwear space or how did you go about finding a good fit with investors? Well, um, swimwear in particular, I think there are very few uh, venture-backed companies. Um, so, and I, I, I believe that just as a kind of a, as a category, it's not something that particularly male investors can relate to. And so maybe had been underfunded for that reason uh, in the past. Also, there are a lot of sort of old school 
legacy brands that are sold with many, many multiple middlemen in the swimwear space. So a a lot of licensed product that's essentially sold through independent sales reps and, and then eventually through major retailers. And so there was just huge opportunity for disruption there. And we knew that. We certainly have many investors that have P2C experience, just certainly not, just not in the moment. Got it. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of the Sarah Blakely story with Spanx when she's pitching all those investors and they're like, um, I don't see a need for Spanx. And then I think one of their wives, like one of the investors' wives tried it on and they're like, this is amazing. But it's kind of sad because, you know, you can't really convince some of these investors like, well, this is what women need. And same thing with swimwear. A lot of them are probably like, ah, a bathing suit is a bathing suit. And they don't really understand why? No, that is not the case. Yeah, no. And I, I think, again, it's about the early stages. It's tougher then. Now we certainly have the quantitative metrics to back up our success, as well as to paint the, the bigger picture from a, a growth perspective. Yep. Yeah, I love that. How do you make sure, like, how do you keep track of your inventory? When I was thinking about your wait list earlier, uh, like, what have you learned to maybe help not have as big of a wait list or like work on the inventory maybe issues. We've heard a lot of that happening, especially for the companies that have come on the show so far, who've like gone through Shark Tank and they've had, you know, huge surges in demand. And then they're trying to figure out their supply chain. Is there any best practices that you guys have found uh, with your company? Yeah. So, so a couple of things, we have a really robust planning process um, that we're managing on a really on a daily basis, but certainly on a weekly basis, making adjustments. We do a couple of things incredibly well. We certainly forecast for growth, which that's, you know, if you've never worked with a venture-backed company and you're a planner, it's completely different than planning, you know, 2% up year over year, right? Like we're talking significant growth rates. And so we we have a top-line plan that we're looking to target. Uh, we have an overall breakdown of apparel to swim by month. We're, we're buying to that. And then what's different about Somersaults is we launched multiple limited editions on an ongoing basis. And those are really planned to sell out in two to three weeks. Mm -hmm. And so we really plan obsolescence and have a good idea of what sort of our weekly sell-throughs are going to be throughout the year. And so I think that we're quite sophisticated actually in our approach to inventory as well as sort of planning for those limited editions. While we still have core product always available as well, um, that that urgency that comes from the limited editions is really interesting. And then on the um, other side of things, on the supply chain side, we just have multiple amazing partners really across the world. And so as we started to see supply chain disruptions this spring uh, around COVID-19, the kind of diverse supply chain set that we have and their ability to move at our speed um, and, and remember, you know, we have that sort of legacy of quick turnaround manufacturing allows us to scale quickly, to shift manufacturing quickly, to, you know, lean into product categories that are important to the consumer right now, for instance, loungewear, while she might not be wearing a resort dress, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and just to really be close to her needs at any given time, which is critical and has proven invaluable, particularly this year, as we're both scaling and dealing with the COVID-19 kind of supply chain. Got it. If someone didn't have a background like you and they were like, I'm really looking to get into apparel or something, what steps would you tell them to find the right partner, manufacturer, or factory? Like, how would you go about it if you didn't have anything to start with? 
So the Commerce Department, you can actually track down Asian factories. You can look at RN numbers on all hang tags or garment labels in, in, in garments. So if you want to start sort of taking notice of who's manufacturing what product and where, that's a good way to do it. And then I think there are several, if you're, if you're looking to start on a small scale, there are several sort of manufacturing organizations in particularly in LA that have domestic manufacturing as well as in New York. Okay. That's cool. Yeah. I, I always wonder, I'm like, how do people find all these like great partners who work so well? I mean, you also hear, you know, some of the bad stories as well, but a lot of people who've come on the show so far have really good partners. And I haven't asked the question of like, how are you finding these people? It sounds, it seems so hard for me to think about working with someone in other countries who I maybe haven't met before. And just yeah, really interesting to think about that process. Would you advise companies starting out to always have more than one like factory partner or because I'm thinking right now we were just talking about with like everything with COVID, a lot of people are having problems with their supply chain and their manufacturers. Do you think a lot of people should pivot now to always have more than one so they're not over-reliant on just one partner? Or how are you all thinking about that? We, we believe in diversification for sure. And of course, um, because we have multiple product categories, um, we certainly, by definition, have multiple factories just by their areas of expertise. But we want to have redundancy for all categories as well. And I think COVID-19 is certainly brought to light why that's important, but you know, it's, it's important from a fair pricing perspective. It's important from a just logistics perspective. Um, and also as you continue to scale and you're in growth mode, like we are at Somersault, it just increases your capacity that much more. Very cool. So another thing I was curious about, originally I, I saw that you were selling swimwear under your name, which to me, you have a great name. It's very like designery. And then you shifted over to sell under Somersault. And I wanted to kind of hear what that process was like and why you switched to not selling under your name anymore. So, so I think a couple of things. Uh, first of all, we wanted Somersault to be a true disruptor in the space and to sit, sit next to other direct-to-consumer brands that are disrupting a category. You want better name than Somersault, right? Yeah. Like we were amazed that it was still available. It's a good name. And this idea... Yeah, this idea that we're turning the industry upside down, as well as evoking the sense of summer and salt and all things kind of joyful and fun. So first and foremost, it really was about building a brand of the future. And and also, um, I don't need to be the the center face of the company at all times. In fact, um, I've sort of enjoyed just my role as CEO. Um, I, I certainly love to design and I have a very trained eye, but, you know, I think my skill set is really around building the business in whole. So I'm very comfortable just letting Somersault stand on its own. It doesn't need to be my name, for instance. Got it. I think that's always a debate when founders are first starting companies. It's like, do you want to build a brand around yourself and have your name be the company or, you know, pick a unique name? So yeah, I was just interested to hear your thought process behind that. So little higher level e-commerce questions. What kind of trends are you most excited about over the next year? Like, what are you following? What are you preparing for? Fortunately for us, but unfortunately for our country, COVID-19 has brought sort of a once in a lifetime adjustment to the retail industry. And some forecasts are that as much as 50% of physical stores, particularly mall-based stores, are likely to close over the, the next 18 months. Mm-hmm. 
And what we know is that that demand is not going away. Those sales are probably going to um, move online. And so the just tailwinds of e-commerce in general for brands like Somersault are phenomenal. Um, and I think it's truly, you know, being in the right place at the right time, having the ability and the resources to scale at a time when the demand is climbing. I mean, we see almost unlimited potential there. Is there anything you're changing over the from things that you've seen over the past six months or so that maybe you weren't thinking about prior to this? It could be your business model, website, anything. So I think, you know, the biggest thing for us is that our the opportunity for Somersault is bigger and it's sooner than we anticipate. Mm-hmm. So this idea of being that the, the go-to e-commerce brand for our generation of women and consumer, for women like us, um, she has fewer and fewer cho- choices, both in-store and then physically. And then also a lot of the brands that she's turned to over the years are struggling tremendously due to the COVID-19 headwinds. And so just knowing that she is likely to go to brands that she already knows and trusts, I think we all kind of in this time have a sense that we don't, you know, we have so much change. uh, We don't want to try just completely new brands, but Somersault particularly, she's, she already knows us, she loves us, she's familiar and is able to um, know and, and trust the product as well as the, the consumer kind of experience really in our favor. Yeah, I think trust is so important and key right now, especially in this environment. Are there ways you go about garnering that trust, whether it's like developing a community and help generate word of mouth among your current consumers? How do you think about building that up? So we have an amazing community of customers, women, women on social media, as well as an awesome customer happiness team. Um, I don't know if you saw, but in the midst of COVID-19, we launched Joycast, which really was a text-based platform for women could, customers, not just women, customers could text us and we would send back sort of a little clip or joyful, uplifting message video, image, anything that sort of made her life a bit happier. And we have an amazing customer happiness team that's led by a group of women that are either in a counseling program or they have a master's degree in English. They just really all are great communicators and have super high empathy for the consumer. And it's a quite a different approach than many of our D2C counterparts are taking. And what's interesting is she really the consumer has really responded to this group and the, the and to our approach for for customer service. Yeah, that's really fun. Did you see anything come from that experiment that you didn't expect? We we had a lot of people that responded. It was amazing, hundreds, thousands of texts, which was fantastic, and we it allowed us to feel like we were supporting her through a really difficult time. And I think our our customer happiness team loved kind of doing their part to make the world just a little bit happier. It was a difficult time for everyone. Yeah, yeah, completely agree. So before we move on to the lightning round, is there anything that I missed that you were hoping I would ask? I don't think so. You did amazing. Oh, thank you. Well, let's move right into the lightning round then. It's where I will ask you a question and you have a minute or less to answer. Are you ready, Lori? I am ready. All right. If you were to create a Netflix original or documentary, what would it be about? Oh, I think some of the Netflix um, original would be about my like sort of life as a 
you know, mom of two boys and my life as a startup founder and, and how at times it seems like those are completely two different worlds, but somehow I managed to navigate them both. Hopefully well. <laughs> I would watch that. I have a lot to learn. So I would be your, your first, uh, what is it, viewer? Or not so well. <laughs> it's, it's a balancing act for sure. Uh, what's up next on your reading list? Uh, the book that is on my nightstand right now next to my bed is Billion Dollar Brand sent to me by one of our investors. And are you enjoying it? I, I have that one on my reading list as well. I haven't gotten to it yet, though. It's great. And what's interesting is I personally know several of the founders that are referenced in the book. So it's great to hear sort of their early origin story. Oh, that's fine. And hopefully they will write a subsequent chapter on Summersault. They will. They will. <laughs> Very cool. Yeah, I definitely have to check that one out. What new piece of tech are you enjoying most right now? It could be an app. It could be something you're using at Summersault that you are just trying out. Yeah, what's exciting around tech that you're using? Um, you know, tech-wise, we are always using sort of the latest and the greatest. But I think in the COVID-19 environment, I'm, I've never been more grateful for Slack. Mm -hmm. um, we used it pre-COVID, but now that we have 100% fully remote team, our team is already somewhat uh, integrated with, with Slack. But now it's just, you know, part of our, our day in and day out every minute. Yeah, us too. I love Slack. What new product are you most excited about? launching or are you working on behind the scenes that no one else knows about? <laughs> Ooh, we have a few things that are top secret. I want to know them. But, uh, um, we have, we had some amazing loungewear launches this spring and summer. And I'm super excited about kind of continuing to build out that, as, uh, build, build out loungewear as a category and particularly for kind of Q4 gifting. Mm -hmm. I think the con the consumer is going to be just blown away. Cool. I can't wait. I, I'm all about loungewear these days. <laughs> all right. We all yes. are. <laughs> Last hard question. What one thing will have the biggest impact on e-commerce in the next year? Oh, it has to be the store closures and the continued kind of um, consumer reluctance to actually even go and shop in store. And so just, just understanding that the growth of the category so clearly, it's taken 10 years to get to this point as far as adoption of e-commerce. And I think we're going to see another 10 years worth of growth in the category in the next 18 months. Yep. Great answer. Well, Lori, it's been a blast. Where can people find out more about you and Somersault? Please go to our website, somersault.com, um, spelled like summer, the season, and salt like the seasoning. Um, and then, of course, um, we're on LinkedIn as well. That's the best way to describe somersault. I like that. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. It was really fun. And we will have to have you back once you hit that billion dollar mark. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, same. See you next time. Take care. Up Next in Commerce is brought to you by Salesforce Commerce Cloud and created by the team at mission.org. Subscribe now at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for checking out another epic hour of business insights and inspiration on the Up Next in Commerce podcast. 
If you like what you've heard and you're interested in partnering with us to bring your brand to a growing audience of e-commerce experts, reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org to get the conversation started.